Here's something you probably don't think about much, undersea communications cables. And yet, they are an everyday part of internet traffic as well as B2B communications for global regions like APAC, where oceans and seas separate bodies of land all over the place. Our sponsor today is Telstra, and they've sent us a couple of folks very knowledgeable about undersea cabling. And so we're going to get nerdy about this topic, digging into how undersea cables are laid, how they can be damaged, signaling methods, pops and landing stations, and whether or not low Earth orbit satellite constellations might someday replace the need for undersea cables. Joining us are Andy Lumsden, Head of Network Engineering and Operations, and Jeff McCarty, General Manager, Network Development and Communication, Commercial Management, both of Telstra. Jeff uh, and Andy, welcome to the show. Uh, Jeff, first question to you as we jump into this topic of undersea cables. I want to understand what Telstra does. You guys are, a lot of the audience here is North America. I know you guys are based out of Australia and cover that part of the world. So help everybody listening understand this undersea cable network of yours at a high level. So how many of these different networks are you operating? What areas do you connect? How many people are using this thing? How much data goes across it? All the cool stats that we get a sense of what this operation of yours is all about. Thanks, Ethan. So look, firstly, this topic, I'm very excited about. I think it's pretty amazing just for the audience. If, if you think about it, we pretty much have cables across the globe with state-of-the-art technology that we've dropped to the bottom of the ocean. And this now pretty much enables us all to communicate and connect with probably about 90 plus percent of, of the world's traffic. Um, Overall, Telstra's network, to give this some scope, uh, we have about 330 terabits of lit capacity on our network with probably a design capacity of up to 500 terabits around the globe. Now, predominantly, Telstra's interest is Australia and Asia and connecting Australia and Asia to the world. Predominantly, the US and EMEA regions is where we have most of our investments. To give you some scale on that, we're invested in about 50 plus systems uh, across those regions. If you take C2C and EAC, which is predominantly our intra-Asia cables there, they connect a lot of the intra-Asia. That would grow up to about 80 systems we're involved in. To give you a bit of coverage of that, that would be about 450,000 kilometers of subsea network that we have in the water um, supporting our customers. Now, this is not only the subsea, but it's also the terrestrial backhaul networks that connect us. And what's probably critical on this is um, that gives us roughly about 28,000 different route combinations we can use to support our customers, uh, depending which subsea segments they're going, how we interconnect those segments, and how we connect that on, on the backhaul. Um, to put this in context on a global scale, there's about 400 subsea networks around the globe. This number, obviously, um, you know, changes a little bit depending on decommissioned and new cables coming into the water at any one point. So we, I think we need to define what a, what a subsea cable actually is, because on the surface, it, well, it isn't on the surface, is it? But on the, on the surface, an undersea cable is a piece of fiber optics that goes from one place to another. But there's actually way more involved in one of these cables than that because of the length of them, for example. And maybe you got armoring and there's signal repeaters and so on. Can you give us a better sense of what a quote unquote undersea cable, a subsea cable really is? So just at a high level, if you, if you look at a subsea cable, you know, 
modern subsea cables is pretty much using fiber optic technologies. It sort of has lasers at one end that fires extreme rapid rates down a thin glass fibers to receptors at the other end. These fibers are wrapped in layers of basically plastic, sometimes steel wire for protection. Those are then pretty much the cable as such would probably be about as wide as a garden hose or a large garden hose. That's pretty much the size of it. However, um, the actual optical fibers are extremely thin that carry those signals, sort of probably roughly the diameter of, a, I guess, a human hair. And then you have all the insulation and protections around those cables. The glass diameter measured in nanometers, typically, just like you'd find in a data center. Um, it, so so engineers in working in a data center might be dealing with fiber optic cable where you've got single mode, multi-mode uh, fiber. Is it, and it sounds somewhat comparable to that, is there anything unusual about the undersea fiber optic cable as compared to what I'd be running in my data center? Very, very similar. The key differences with the uh, with the fiber optic cable is that we one of the key elements that we need to try and manage is uh, is the dispersion, or actually with the advent of sort of some of the newer coherent technologies, perhaps not so new now in the last ten years, actually unmanaging that dispersion is uh, is actually a benefit to us. But uh, it's very, very similar in context for the actual fiber. We're, uh, we're using uncompensated in modern systems, uncompensated uh, fiber optic cable. In the past, um, you know, in the pre sort of 2000 era, that, uh, that fiber was, it was very important to manage this dispersion. So you had very um, bespoke um, uh, dispersion managed fiber that you were, that we were installing. Um, so, yeah, it's a very specific uh, planning exercise. And in, in some extent, with the advent of coherent transmission technology in the last 15 years, that, uh, 10 to 15 years at least, that's, that's actually simplified the, uh, the, um, the fiber type. And now we're using uh, large cut leaf fiber, large effective area uh, fiber, so that we can actually turn up the optical power and we can, uh, and we actually encourage uh, to a certain extent that the uh, the dispersion because that helped uh, the actual transmission path, and you know through that um, and that shift, and that was a real big step change in in uh, the, these cable system designs. Uh, as uh, uh, you know, we're just saying there that you know there is amplifiers uh, every so so often along the cable, about every fifty to sixty kilometers. Um, you know, you'll see you know this you know big torpedo shaped two meters in length, perhaps, well, up to two meters in length, beryllium copper uh, repeater that sat on the ocean floor um, and amplifying. It's not in regeneration, it's just pure reamplification, uh, re which is the, one of the challenges that we have with sending a signal, you know, thousands of kilometers, you know, uh, you know, so up to 10 to 12,000 kilometers these days on the longer systems across the Pacific. So it's all, all managing those fundamental um, baseline optical parameters, which the fiber itself is a, is a big part of that but it's actually in some senses and from a fiber perspective got easier um, or simplified in a sense and that's been driven by the transmission optics uh, and at either end and again you said the signal repeaters the uh, the torpedo shaped devices they're they are not regenerating the signal they are taking the signal that's there just boosting it and then sending it on its way again yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that that's that's it. Yeah, we're using EDFA amplifiers to boost that to boost that signal. Do those repeaters need to be powered in some way? Absolutely, they do, and that's kind of one of the other on the super long systems. And super long, I mean those. Uh, well, these days would be like twelve thousand kilometers. Um, you have to power it up now, just for purposes of resiliency. 
we like to power up from both ends. So these are single line power systems. So we're firing the power down uh, copper sheath, uh, which is in the uh, built into the cable. So that is sent out to the far end, and which point it's terminated to ground. And we use the seawater as the earth return uh, back to the far end. Now. Uh, you can obviously you can imagine you've got to really um, crank up the voltage to push that uh, the, those electrons down all that way to the far end. And, and what we do, um, so so you have a very very high thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of volts, um, and typically a one one amp of of current cable system to power those repeaters. Uh, and what we do for resiliency purposes, we 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 fire a or send a, a positive uh, voltage one way and a negative voltage the other way. And in the event that we get uh, a shunt fault on the cable, so let's say we get some external aggression, a fishing net and anchor grabs hold of it, something like that, and it compromises that copper sheath, then you're going to get a virtual ground or you're going to get an earthing point to to the seawater. Well, we can then balance that. We call them PFEs, power feed equipment. We can then balance them to the positive note to that shunt fault or that 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 compromise that seat that earth fault that's on the cable and maintain the power so this dual end feeding of the power is very very important for us and as i said in today's sort of world pushing that beyond sort of twelve thousand, i think maybe the latest pfes that are, that are available now are probably limited up to about fifteen thousand kilometers but you know the system does work single end feeding but you lose that resiliency so you know if you get a shunt fault the whole cable system goes off so we we're trying to build resiliency in all the time just because of the importance of that that link. We're going to get into some of the issues that you can run into with these cables a little later, but I just want to get uh, ask another question first. You're talking about all these great distances. Is it Telstra exclusively laying these cables or do you work with a consortium? Do people get together uh, who are leasing these optical strands? How does Who's in charge of, of laying this cable? Traditionally in the past, it was consortium-based builds, mainly with different sort of telecoms providers, but that's changed over time. So at the moment, still consortium-based investments, but I would say it's a lot less participants in a cable because the real push, and it comes down to affordability, but the real drive on laying these cables is people to have their own direct fiber ownership, which has significant advantages, mainly in upgrading your capacity through the life of that cable, it leaves that a little bit in your control, depending on your traffic and demands on that system and not being reliant on a consortium upgrade to run. So today, there's, I I guess, a combination of consortium type cables. There is the individual owned cables. There is very much, uh, I guess you could call it a a small component of people involved in building. But obviously, what's changed the game is a lot of the content providers, significant uh, investments in the in subsea infrastructure for themselves. Mm -hmm. But one of the critical things is also is um, uh, those providers that actually have the uh, cable landing stations or the ability to land cables on either side. Um, so the, these are the critical sort of forms of those operators to be involved. Um, now, this has also recently made it more challenging with the, um, should I say, the different uh, political positions as well on huh. which parties are involved and what cables. So. That's pretty much the the dynamic of it today. So I want to make sure I understand, is it a different entity who owns uh, where the cables land and connect into the infrastructure? That's different from the uh, the consortium or the group that owns the actual and is laying the actual fiber optic cable? 
the person who tends to be has that cable landing station, they will also be an investor in the cable. So they okay. tend to be both, but they, they would own that cable landing station and they would enable that cable to land, et cetera, and, and manage it from there. But today it tends to be an invested party in that cable as well. So f- for example, uh, Telstra may be involved in some new cables. We may be landing at one end, uh, another party, may be also invested and they will land it on the other end. You know, there's, there's various different commercial models for how these, these cables are built to your point, consortia, privately owned. I and mean, one of the things for uh, that's unique for Telstra and getting to some of the maintenance questions um, is it can provide its, uh, its own challenge is the ownership. Fairly unique for Telstra is that we own a significant part and wholly own a significant part of um, Asia Pac cable assets. Um, huh. And, uh, you know, that's just us, you know, Laying, well, we laid them. These are the early 2000 era cable systems, ESC and C2C, which Jeffrey to referred to earlier. With that brings its own challenge in that the fact if you're the sole owner operator, um, that's great um, you know, for what we want to do with the network. But uh, you know, from a maintenance and operational perspective, you're on your own. Um, you know, and you bear the cost of, uh, of maintaining them as well. So, how is the cable actually laid? So, my my knowledge of this goes to a picture I saw where there was a big ship with a big spool of fiber on board. But I mean, you're not putting tens or hundreds of kilometers on a spool. I don't care how big it is. So how do they actually get a whole length laid? That's a great question. You know, I always say, I've been asked this question before, and I'll always say that actually it's something that's done in a really simple way, but it's just done really, really well. First of all, the cable's got to be manufactured. So there's probably four or five um, these days, only four or five cabling factories that can manufacture cable um, in the East Coast, USA, um, in, in Europe, in France in particular, that can manufacture that cable. So it's high in demand at the moment. It's often on the build side of things, kind of one of the, the long pole in the tent. How do you get, you know, 10,000 kilometers of cable manufactured and there's competing systems, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what they do is it's manufactured into the, in, in, the, uh, in the cable factory. And those cable factories are by the ocean and essentially – Essentially, as it's manufactured and comes off, it's loaded onto the ship pretty directly. And there are huge, huge cable drums, which are in the cable tanks, they're called. They're, and these are on the ship. So these big cable laying vessels, you know, um, and again, they're in limited supply around the, around the world as well. Very unique vessel. And it has three, perhaps four of these huge cable drums. So just like you see a big cargo ship, it's got a huge hull. You have these circular drums and the cable is laid to a design plan. Uh, it's designed in, 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 the, in the sections uh, with the amplifiers within them, and there's a laying plan all drawn out in the factory, and it loaded into into the ship onto these huge drums, which takes can take weeks to load into. Very very carefully, coiled up and coiled up and coiled up and coiled up, um, in, in the manner that uh, obviously in the reverse manner as it comes off the back of the ship as it's being laid. So that's how they actually do it. So in a sense, they do put not a drum; they just lay it into these cable tanks uh, on the ship. Uh, the ship goes out to to the point where it wants to start laying, it's fed off the back of the ship. In some sense, in the deeper the water, where we're not burying the cable. So uh, one of the protection methods that we use is in shallow water. And by that, I'm going to refer to anything less than a thousand meters. Huh. We bury it. We bury it. So we plow it into the ocean floor. So you imagine like a, a you know farmer plowing a field. Exactly the same thing. The ship will tow a plow behind it behind um, behind the ship, and the cable will feed in. And you know we can get depths of Typically between three and five meters. It depends on the seabed condition. Again, that's all part of the pre-planning and design. And yeah, and literally the deeper it is, the easier it is because at depths beyond a thousand meters, 
right? Um, and in the mid-Pacific, that can get up to 10 kilometers depth. We put light uh, armored cable. So you've got a very lightweight cable because it doesn't have all the armoring that we discussed earlier um, around the cable because it doesn't need it because at that depth, there's very, very little that's going to kind of impact or affect the cable. And in and so therefore, it's unarmored, it's lightweight, and it just it, re it very slowly uh, comes off the back of the ship as the ship moves along. Once you start getting to shallow water or near the shore end, it gets very, very complex uh, in terms of having to bury it, manually bury it. At the very last piece, you know, you even have a divers involved. But up to that point, you wouldn't really use, you wouldn't use dive teams. Do use ROVs um, if we hit a problem or anything like that. But the ROVs are also limited as well to you know, around three kilometers in depth. But uh, yeah, in, in essence, it's quite a it's a simple exercise, which is done incredibly, incredibly well. And of course, it's important to understand where it hits the seabed and where and where it is, because that that becomes our RPL, as we call it, our root position layer. So that's very important for going back to find it. Um, and understanding where it's gone, and make sure that make sure that it's actually laid where where the uh, where the planners have, have planned it to be. Yeah. So, how do those kind of routes get chosen? Does how much does the ocean floor topography play into that decision, along with other things like the location of the landing site and you know coastal uh, political boundaries and so on? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 fundamentally key in that planning stage. And typically, what we would do if we were going to commission a new cable, the first step would to be to perform a desktop survey. Um, and so the guys would use you know planning tools, um, GIS tooling. Um, a lot of the seafloor, particularly on these hot routes um, and these well traffic routes, is well is well mapped. Um, and you can imagine if you look at look at the cables uh, where they're laid, it looks a bit like the um, you know, the, you see the uh, aircraft traffic routes, right? You know, you've mm -hmm. got and shipping lanes. It's exactly the same thing on the seafloor. Over the years, that the 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 avoidance of huge, you know, trenches or, or dangerous areas or whatnot um, is is pretty well understood for the most part. Um, certainly on the on on those sort of highways that we use to lay cables. Obviously, separation cable crossing is a big problem now. As more cables go in the water, you cross somebody else's cable. You can't just do that. You've got to contact the owner of that cable or the the, the the entity that's operating and maintaining the cable and get sort of a um, a position a permission to cross the cable and you know for example uh, we get these all the time uh, and we, we will ask you know what's the methodology and we kind of agree that with that with that with them because we don't want them and they don't want to damage our cable uh, doing that so they are they are laid and that's becoming a bit more of a chance particularly in shallow water as we get close to the coastal areas um, uh, about you know cable crossings um, and so that's all mapped out and agreed in advance and then you know once that's all done that's basically loaded and these vessels have very sophisticated positioning systems on them and that's all loaded into you know, onto the ship and into the computer of the ship. And that's all part of that laying. When I said it's it's a, a simple kind of exercise, uh, but just done really well, that's part of it. You know, it's very, very uh, cleverly mapped. The tension of the cable as it's being laid has to be, you know, very, very closely monitored. And of course, then you get to territorial waters now in Asia Pacific. And obviously with the some of the you know, geopolitical situations, let's say, between uh, across the Pacific, uh, either ends of it, uh, that can be very, very challenging. And claim and the South China Sea, where we operate um, a lot, um, that is a very interesting environment where, you know, everybody seems to claim the same patch of ocean. So that is very, very tricky. And that's also tricky, not only for laying, but also for maintaining the cable, getting permits to go in to fix a cable. Um, you know, uh, it's something that we really want to uh, to promote um, in terms of uh, understanding from governments about the 
the critical nature of the infrastructure of, of subsea cables, which, you know, I think that's getting some good good traction now, but it's it's still a ways to go. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly improved uh, as it becomes a challenge, but we can sometimes get caught up in that and permitting uh, can become a difficult exercise. Uh, certainly something that uh, various, you know, um, interested parties, owners uh, talk about a lot in the industry. So once you've got that cable laid uh, and political issues aside, what, what kind of problems can come up with them? You mentioned you might need to go and fix a cable. Well, why? So contrasting that, I've had to lay armored cable in the ground, very different from the sea, but I've had to label, uh, lay it in the ground. And once I've done that, I pretty much don't have a problem unless like a backhoe comes along, something like that. <laughs> Our backhoe is uh, is uh, is is a, is a, an anchor or a, or some fishing gear, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and and they do come along very frequently, particularly in uh, the I would say depths of up to maybe a couple of kilometres. Uh, that the anchoring and fishing is a, is a big big issue, um, and so yeah, it, uh, fishing. I would say is more difficult to manage and control. It's it's a it's a free fire zone out there, you know, in that sense. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, and they go and as a you know, frequently we would try and figure out how we can better manage that. But uh, they, uh, um, you know, I'm told, you know, fishermen go where the fish are, you know, and that's it. They right. don't really care for too much about anything else. Uh, so uh, you know, even when we're out there operating, they'll you know, if we're attracting some kind of interesting schools of fish or whatever they're after they'll come in close around it can get a bit dangerous at times actually and uh, it's something we really try and manage um, as best as we can the other risk for us is seismic activity you know the undersea earthquakes or mm -hmm. the effect of mudslides mm -hmm. on the you know like an avalanche you know because you you know the seabed right you know you 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 know sometimes you're threading through alpine passes you know on these cable routes uh, and you know they tend to be the, uh, the the real thing for us, for me personally, and for us, particularly in Asia Pac, particularly where on the continental shelf we are, got cables laid at, in that one you know thousand meter kind of uh, uh, danger zone um, is um, is fishing as as, as the biggest uh, threat to the cable, uh, but you know closely followed by large anchoring uh, you know container ship type vessels um, anchoring. Um, but that's a little bit more able to monitor, track and control those guys. Uh, so I read a blog uh, that Telstra put out talking about you actually have a knock where you can track ships in the area using sort of this global ship positioning system and see if they're coming near their cables and actually then call out to the ship and say, hey, by the way, you're getting near some cables. So please be careful with the nets, the fishing gear, the anchors, et cetera. Is that is that the case? That's absolutely the case, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, just given the, you know, as I said, it's the the region, the APAC region in particular between Singapore and up to Japan, you know, the fishing activity is significant, huge, huge yep. fleets of sh shipping thing. And, of course, it's one of the most heavily trafficked containerized uh uh, zones in the world, uh, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong in particular, but the huge uh, ports and, uh, and and volumes of uh, container ships going in and out of China now is, uh, is just increased all that traffic. So, yeah, we do. We use AIS. So all vessels over a certain size um, have to have a transponder on them, just like an aircraft, and you can go in mm -hmm. and look at uh, where that ship is. Of course, that relies on the ship as its transponder switched on. Uh, and for the most, for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, the big, bigger commercial vessels do. Our fishing vessels, um, uh, I would say, do not. Uh, and and ones that uh, are of say less than uh, 50 meters in length 
not bothering with AS, AS at all. Um, yeah. And so they're very difficult to monitor track. And often, you know, big Chinese fishing fleets, for example, will be very difficult to contact even by VHF radio when we're out at sea. Uh, very difficult. Um, so um, it's, it's yeah. Uh, some areas of the world are, are better policed than others, but yeah. Um, and we do. The NOC just sits and monitors. It doesn't sit and monitor it, I should say. But we we look and we proactively monitor it. And we will contact ships, you know, uh, or the ship owners. Uh, and in Singapore, uh, in particular, on uh, that area there, which is, you know, you can just look at uh, online at how many vessels at any given time. That's uh, you know thousands. Um, it's been very very effective at reducing our cable damage. So do you have any sort of legal enforcement power to compel them to kind of move out of the way? Or is it more of a, as a courtesy, would you please be careful because of the location you're in? Well, yeah. Uh, now, um, it, it, it does rely on that courtesy. However, we've, we do have a little sting in our tail in the, in Singapore in particular. Uh, you know, Telstra was, um, I, I, yeah, I can say, you know, leading the way in terms of, of marrying that those uh, any cable damage up with 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 legal action, and we have um, kind of cracked the nut on how to do it. Some of the marine laws and uh, they do rely on um, uh, kind of um, not so well enforced um, uh, agreements, um, but uh, we we can do that, and we have taken action against ships. But that's post damage, and we want to avoid the damage in the first instance. Sure. And so we do use that threat to to do it. Um, I can say that uh, fishing compensation is a very different story. We're not going after fishermen. This is when you're after large commercial vessels where you can identify an entity that owns a ship. And I think the, the most trickiest it got, we once impounded a vessel uh, legally. Uh, we're able to impound a vessel in Singapore and they paid up and we, uh, you know, we had the court release, release the ship. Um, oh. That's one instance in, in, you know, 20 years that I've, that I've seen that, but we've taken action against, and recovered conversation from commercial, large commercial operation operators in, in about 20 cases. Okay, that's interesting. One thing I'd just like to add to this, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of focus and, and yes, subsea cables do have faults when they're in the ground, predominantly, probably two thirds of that. Most of it's driven from, as Andy said, the, the, the sort of human activity around fishing, shipping, um, and obviously the rest of it is environmental factors, things like earthquakes and others, which we can't control. But one thing I think uh, certainly anyone looking at their internet traffic, their content, et cetera, probably doesn't see any of this impact, right? Um, and, and that's driven from not only these proactive measures that have helped to reduce it, but fundamentally uh, the companies and as well as what we have, we build multiple cables and have multiple diverse paths to route the traffic. And that's how we design the networks and the capacity to, to support this and limit any damage on, on the end customer. So um, I just wanted to add that because it is a key factor and yes, cables have faults and there's, there's a significant amount, but it is protected. Uh, and that's why there are multiple systems running around the globe because there are some things like environmental and others which will damage your cable and repair times can be a lengthy period that they are mitigated against due to the other paths mm -hmm. that you have. So when you're looking at your network, it's absolutely critical you manage that diversity into it. So most of Intraasia and other paths, we, we would have, you know, sort of four or more different um, diverse paths or cables to mitigate certain issues. 
um, that will happen uh, undoubtedly in this industry. One other question that comes to mind is I've heard of um, certain nation states uh, actually going after undersea cables to try to tap them uh, either for you know surveillance purposes or information gathering. Is that a worry for you guys? Is that something you have to deal with and is that something you can monitor from the NOC? Look, I think there's different opinions on this. There's definitely, you know, parts of it, lots of articles on what's happening there. I think from our perspective, the security side, I mean, to tap a cable, I I think is extremely challenging, right? You need specialized equipment, you know, you would effectively have to pull the cable up without damaging it. Uh, you got a lot of power and voltage going down that, but it, it's mm-hmm. definitely rumored around that perspective. I, for us, I, I think in terms of the actual subsea cable, probably less of a security risk that we see it. I, I think probably, uh, how would I put this? There's probably easier ways if you wanted to go down that <laughs> path. Um, <laughs> <laughs> than than trying to do that. So, you know, and, and that's a well-crafted where crafted email will get you very far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot yeah, of focus, think- let's say, on the terrestrial side, on the equipment, on the other side, on the security around more your software layer and managing that, because that's probably where um you know, you have you have greater risks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you also mentioned the satellite industry and transferring data and that impact earlier, you know, sort of um, uh, the low orbit satellites, that's, you know, pretty much a hot conversation at the moment. That'll have challenges on that security as well. So I think for the subsea industry in terms of that actual fiber, especially all of that fiber that's already in the sea, um, you know the the risk on on that um, is is probably not as significant as I would see in other areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the idea of and I, I touched on it earlier. The idea of subsea cables being critical infrastructure and being recognised as that is improving. But I, I think the awareness of, of governments and those interested bodies within within a country level uh, have be, are becoming more and more aware of the risk of intrusion into these the networks and as Jeff was getting to I think for us it would be fair to say that the security risk whilst not to be ignored from a physical perspective and and, and of course you know uh, in terms of the subsea cable or even the land cable um, you know we extend these cables from the beach we call it the beach manhole or the cable station at the beachhead uh, right into the city pops um, or the data centers I think the the the, the uh, most significant resource still remains that you know uh, protection uh, of of the internet itself, um, uh, the, the higher layer there, the transport layer certainly. Um, but yeah, I think from the physical aspect of tapping a cable, it'd be very difficult to do. It's not impossible, but you know, for that to be undetected by you know our operation center that's monitoring that would be would be you know we can monitor you know electrical shift and change on that cable. Uh, we can monitor optical performance, power mm. levels. We can monitor. We can monitor to a certain extent uh, some of the parameters on each and every one of those repeaters, and we have pretty sophisticated test uh, test gear as well to 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 do that. And and that 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 equipment's becoming um, and that capability is improving. So it would be very very difficult. I, I think um, from a governmental level, uh, you know, um, lawful intercept is there, in, and it's all country specific. Um, um, and so that's it, the focus is really more on that. I think some of the, the ideas of, you know, submarine tapping into a cable, who knows what some of the, uh, you know, 
uh, some of the uh, uh, you know, of uh, you know, uh, you know uh, black ops guys have got you know, but uh, <laughs> I think that's a bit uh, pushing it a bit far to say that that's what they're going to do. And for me, I just couldn't imagine how they could tap into that without us knowing knowing that that was the case from a com- cable perspective, a subsea cable perspective. Sure. Yeah, it sounds more like a movie plot than uh, than something that you'd, you'd really be able to do because just because what you're saying would be so difficult to pull it off. Hey, I want to ask a nerd question. So I have done some metro uh, fiber work where it was just Ethernet on either end, but you had to buy a fairly expensive optic, at least compared to what, you're us- what I would be used to buying to drive that signal across town. Well, what kind of optics do you have to put on either end of the cable here? I mean, I know there's amplifiers in the middle, but you're still pushing signal. I think you guys said 50 to 60K before it hits an amplifier. So what, what is that optic all about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we, we're using uh, uh, sub, submarine transponders. So basically you buy that um, pretty expensive uh, cross-town port and we, we buy an even more expensive one that uh, that we plug in that's uh, suitable to push that signal, um, you know, across the uh, that 50 kilometers, which is not really the challenge, right? I mean, that's still kind of, you know, your metro level stuff, right, uh, and terrestrial stuff. But uh, it's actually the modulation that's uh, that's on the optical bearer that's where the magic happens, and uh, you know, coherent technology which came in around um, the mid two thousands, I'll say, really was a game changer for how much capacity you could put through one of these, put through a cable, and specifically through a fiber. Um, and uh, coherent optics really is. Um, in the old days, uh, we used, um, and I say the old days, around late 90s, uh, when this sort of new high, high-powered multi uh, DWDM. You know, for those familiar terrestrial systems, will understand the same thing. Principle, it's exactly the same. Multiple wavelengths down a, a broader uh, spectrum, producing more power. In the early days, they were really using what we call on-off key, which is very simple, just flashing light, you know, down down a cable. And the reason for that is anything more sophisticated than that that you would see in terrestrial or radio systems just would not get down the fiber. We couldn't send it unregenerated for thousands of, of, of kilometers. Mm. And uh, so that limited these systems to less than a terabit of capacity down a single fiber. This is, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Now we're into 20 terabit zones, you know, plus um, and coherent uh, technology, which is using amp and phase shift modulation, really changed with some pretty, uh, pretty, pretty fancy FEC forward error correction to adjust the signal uh, at the far end. So basically, as it arrives at the other end, we're telling it, sending the message back saying, you know, you kind of probably want to do this so we can interpret it at the other end. And I mentioned before about the cable types, dispersion as a light goes down that cable, um, and this affects terrestrial systems as well, but it's a big deal on the uh, on the uh, cable system. That pulse, that pulse of light, width of light starts to expand. That dispersion occurs, and that can start to interfere with the next carrier that uh, that's an optical uh, bearer, that's channel bearer, or whatever that's got that's 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 next to it, adjacent to it. And there's lots of different uh, you know effects. All the same ones that you see on terrestrial systems, it's just magnified over that that distance. And now we said with the fiber type, got simple with the coherent optics we actually prefer that pulse spreading it actually helps us interpret the signal at the other end so that's actually simplified the fiber designs uh, so they're unmanaged in the terms of dispersion in the old days very a very complex mix of different type fiber types dispersion 
fibers, uh, non-dispersion fibers. Um, it was very complex, <clears throat> which made for um, repairs to be, you know, very a little bit more complex as well and maintaining different cable types, much more simple now. And uh, really that coherent technology has been the enabler for these the internet essentially if you look at you know it's enabled that without that we'd, we would be building many 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 more cables than we have to build today and to that point our 2000 designed and built systems which were 600 meg per fiber to one terabit tops uh, design we're now we just done trials and we're pushing using coherent technology over the exact same infrastructure fibers and repeaters 12 terabits mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, feck along the way there in that explanation, your know, forward error correction, which is everywhere. It's, it, the whole internet runs on that because even uh, Ethernet, uh, the the very fast multi-gigabit, hundreds of gigabit Ethernet signaling has feck buried way down in there as part of it. You never even know what's happening, but there it is. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah. And it, that's part of the overhead that we that we carry. So, and again, you know, with the subsea system, everything is magne- magnified, you know, mm. it's, just, it's just it's a larger scale and the effect is, is much, much bigger. So with the advance in optics, have you been able to take old fiber and put new optics on either end and still make use of it? That's exactly what we're doing, yeah. So mm. that the example I just shared there, um, it's a 2000 era laid uh, system. And that had the complex mix of different types of fiber types, you know, leaf fiber, uh, dispersion managed fiber, you know, uh, dispersion compensated fiber, uh, you know, you just three or four different types because as, as the optical signal goes through, you know, basically what we're trying to do is, is manage that basic optical signal. And then we lay the transmission and modulate that bearer with the different types of, you know, I mentioned coherent transmission and dispersion, uh, sorry, um, you know, amplitude modified phase shift uh, keying, uh, all those different types we, we, we kind of, we employ. And, and um, but, you know, even with that older type of fiber uh, where it's got you know, different types of fiber in it versus a new one today, which would all be unmanaged, large, effective core fiber. Um, we can still put coherent. It's even can get through that. And, and as I said, we, we just done trials on a cable that was designed at 600 uh, uh, megabits per second per fiber transmission, ultimate capacity using exactly the same infrastructure. We put coherent optics on the end and we, we proved 12 terabits working on that segment over, mm. over 2000 kilometers. Mm. So, so that, that enables us to, for these cables to be much more commercially, um, you know, viable over the longer term. Yeah, that's <laughs> not having to lay all of that cable all over again. That must have been quite a day, a lot of champagne popping. Yeah, Jeff does the champagne popping. <laughs> <laughs> or our sales team certainly do, you know. Uh, uh, they're going to be listening to this and I'm, I'm sure she'll get some comments back. Yeah, but the lifespan of these systems, you know, typically they were 25 years. And, uh, you know, we always say that, you know, 25 years was really a kind of the commercial view. These systems built of this era with this capability, so built in the 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, that were built. And there was a kind of a bubble then where there's a lot built. Um, and these large capacity systems, you know, we're all designed with 25 years, but nobody had maintained a cable with that technology beyond that. We're just hitting that boundary now. And what we see is that, that those cables can extend, you know, why not? You know, if we can keep adding capacity to, the, to them, if they're running um, you know, uh, the quality of the cable is maintained and, and, you know, the repairs are done, you can still sell capacity on them and they're still, uh, you know, commercially viable. Hmm. So if I'm, if I'm a a consumer of, of Telstra services, I'm, I'm an enterprise, let's say, and I've got a global WAN and I'm using Telstra to help me build that network. Do I 
care about exactly what's going on with the undersea cables? Like from a design perspective, do I need to be considering things about that? Would maybe one of the pairs or a strand of fiber somewhere in there be mine as an enterprise? Look, I think the the key thing on this network when we support, and that's what we touched on with these systems, right? Um, the, the key thing I would be cared about is is around your SLA, which is not necessarily the fiber you want because we would manage that resilience, but your traffic would go on a combination of systems to give you that diversity. As we touched on earlier, if you have an outage on a cable, that repair time could be months effectively. So if you're an enterprise customer, that's obviously not going to be suitable, right? So that's how we're supporting it across sort of the the 80 plus systems and that diversity um, I mentioned in supporting your your demand. So you wouldn't actually see that impact uh, within the the submarine cable perspective because that would be managed within Telstra. Right. I look at Telstra and I, I have that SLA and as long as Telstra can meet that for me, however the my packets are routed, that's fine. That's all I'm worried about, which is interesting. I've been on some designs terrestrial where, hey, I need you, my local carrier, to show me the maps where your wires enter my building, how it gets across town or wherever to the central office. And then I need you to show me a diverse path, um, how it's going somewhere else that I know uh, that I can, you know, trust that this is all going to happen and I will pay you for that service. So there is a, a kind of a different mindset here, uh, I suppose, because of the scale that we're working at. But but again, yeah. as you said, that the point of this, the way you design it is, if an undersea cable is severed and it's going to take months to repair it, we have diverse paths. You don't have to care about that customer. The larger enterprise are becoming much more aware of cable systems and cable designs. It's interesting you asked the, uh, you sort of mentioned um, about uh, KMZs and, you know, where because the actual, you know, um, uh, GIS position of cables, both terrestrially and and in in the water uh, because they're buying on different systems, um, either implementing their own kind of redundancy. But yeah, they are becoming much more aware and much more savvy about, you know, how we lay, where we lay cables or where they are. Um, because of the volume of traffic that they are running. And in terms of fiber level ownership, you know, the large content providers absolutely are at that scale. Um, and so they have some pretty smart engineers, as we know, and they ask us all those, you know, kind of questions. And some of it, you know, we kind of necessarily don't want to share. I mean, you know, telling, you know, getting out there where the, um, you know, where all the cables are, are laid in detail, you know, and where they can be accessed. It's kind of something back to a security question is is something that we have to be careful about. But yeah, we have arrangements to share that level of detail to make sure that they're comfortable mm-hmm. with, with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. One question I've got to ask is, we sort of alluded to a little bit, but how do you actually repair an undersea cable if there's a problem? <laughs> I'd like, very very carefully, I'd like to say we don't do it too often, but unfortunately we do it probably more than we, 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 we wish to. Particularly in those areas of shallow water, you know, we spoke mm-hmm. about the kind of 1,000 meter, you know, death zone for cables because uh, they're in the reach of the fishermen, um, and uh, um, uh, that is a uh, challenge. First, first of all, you've got to identify where the cable fault is, and we can test that um, 
few methods. We can fire uh, an OTDR, which the terrestrial uh, guys will will be very familiar with. You know, optical time domain reflectometer gives uh, sends out a pulse of light, bounces back, and that's all well and good. We can see it. But if you've got repeaters in the way, you can't push through a repeater. So we use a uh, um, the repeaters have what we call a high loss loop back in them, and we can use a COTDR, coherent OTDR, which can actually listen to those. Uh, reflections back from each repeater and give you a a, a view of the amplified uh, uh, network. If it's a hard cut or it's a shunt fault, one of the simplest ways to use is, uh, you know, is uh, just looking at the power. We can see the PFE. If the PFE drops down, ramps down, you know, by X amount of voltages, we can just use a simple VI calculation, good old stuff, fingers and thumbs and work out pretty quickly and accurately where the, uh, you know, use Ohm's law and just figure out where it is. Uh, and actually it sounds simple, but that's, we do that a lot, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the PFE. So a, a balance of those two things, uh, and that identifies where we are with the, uh, with the repair contact a ship operator. Uh, you know, we have maintenance vessels on standby. They're not in Telstra's case. They're not owned by us. And that's most operators no longer own those ships. Uh-huh. They are, Privately, they're they're owned by other companies, and we we contract them. We have them on standby, though, and we can get a ship out within you know a few days. Um, sometimes even sooner than that, within um, 12 and 24 hours. Um, um, and they go out, and we give them a position, um, a GPS position, uh, based on our our measurements, and they go in. And basically, we have to cut into the cable. Now, those those positions that we find through that testing regime that we we do is 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 pretty accurate, right? And of course, remember, if you cut the cable, you've got to cut it to make the repair, right? Because you've got to bring it to the surface, and you can't bring it up to the surface in one piece. The strain and the uh, load on the cable will snap it, um, you know, because obviously when it comes off the back of the ship when it's laid, it's laid in a straight line. Um, so, you know, we have to cut it and we bring up each end. Now, remember, you're on the ocean and, and you could be a, a good, you know, you could be one kilometer, two kilometers depth of water. So mm-hmm. to bring it up, you're going to have to reverse the ship up the same as the water depth to get it on board to prep that end. You put a new piece in and go to the other end of the cable and bring that to the surface. So, you know, you're basically going to put in a piece of new cable to make that repair, which is going to be about three times the three times the, the uh, water depth in length, in added length. And that's what we call a cable bite. We lay that bite. So you've got this extra loop, which is not ideal, but uh, there's no other way to do it because you've got to bring it to the surface to make the repair. Hmm. And, and they basically grapple for the cable. I mean, you know, if it gets a bit tricky, if it's covered in mud or, you know, debris, whatever it is, you know, you, you can, to a certain length, you can can use arrow, we'll send an ROV down. But, you know, for, for the most part, they use a grappling hook uh, over the side of the ship. They'll make cutting runs, drive runs to cut the cable and just, uh, and then grapple for the cable to, to bring it to the surface. And again, it's one of those things, you look at the guys that are doing it and these things are huge, right? You know, they're huge. Um, and if you... Um, I'd like say, you know, that it's quite a simple operation, but it's just done incredibly well by the guys that are doing it, you know. Hmm. Well, let, let's look to the future, gentlemen. If uh, we've got these new global satellite, low Earth orbiting satellite constellations that are going up, they're sending more of them up every day. Does Do these new low Earth orbiting satellite constellations, does that have any impact on the need for undersea cables? Let me put it this way. If you look at the growth we've had effectively for transport, right, to transport all our content and traffic, it's it's almost, uh, it's through the roof, right? Uh, especially in the last year and others, we've seen that grow significantly. We're seeing 40% year on year on average growth for this. Um, you know, in the last year in Intra-Asia alone, we saw 63% growth. Um, if, if you look at... Um, 
you know, all the technology, the advancements we discussed on cable, trying to support that global traffic demand is a challenge. I'll say that, right? We need a lot more cables. We need a lot more technology advancements to meet that. Secondly, the other driver for this is if you look terrestrial, you know, that connectivity, obviously your subsea is one point, but when it gets to a land, it needs to go somewhere to connect to that traffic. A lot of terrestrial fiber and access to where consumers are is not available today. If you look in Asia, if you look in Africa, especially those areas, and even some parts of the US. So where where I'm heading with this is I actually see, you know, the drivers for, you know, Leo and these cables and the satellites, I see them actually having a great synergy here together to support this. We basically do need both going forward, um, in my view. Um, you know, the satellites would offer an ability for a market extension. Mm-hmm. They can tap into a lot of those harder to reach terrestrial places. I see it as a great for both satellite and subsea as a resilience uh, path to play. It just adds us another resilience uh, piece in our toolkit to manage that. So, you know, fundamentally, I think if the satellite operators and the sort of um, submarine cable operators, especially extending their services, I mean, it's early days, but uh, there's an ecosystem there I see if we both partner up to give that end-to-end connectivity then effectively, uh, they will definitely both be required and give, I guess, the end user traffic requirements a better service. That's where the real driver of it. Now, there are other aspects to it, right? Obviously, it's, um, you know, there'll be niche plays to it, right? The the satellite probably, um, you know, just in terms of that latency, could have an advantage to sort of the high frequency trading gaming part of that perspective of it, right? But the other consideration is just the size of the bandwidth required. You know, they're going to struggle to compete with the with the subsea industry on the amount of traffic we can move around the globe yeah. in a cost effective manner. Yeah, it, it's um, very different so, technology. The, the the Leo stuff from from the reading that I've been doing on it, it is a, a shared medium. The more people you put on the system, the uh, you've got a shared bandwidth problem. You can be constrained by the number of users that are on the system. And so from a design perspective, I, I identify with what you're saying. There's a synergy there. You can get at a larger market of people that are using Leo for, for last mile to get on uh, the internet or whatever the network is. But to have it compete with subsea cable, it's different technology, uh, solving different problems sure. with wildly different uh, bandwidth and latency profiles and such. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just in terms of, you know, why can't we, you know, put more stuff up into the sky? I mean, you know, you have that, you know, the the, the radio guys and though, you know, the conundrum there. You, you are pushing, you know, uh, through the uh, through the atmosphere, and you know, it is affected by weather and all that sort of stuff. You know, it does have uh, an impact to uh, to to the capacity. So while low Earth orbit stuff may, let's see, let's see, it'd be interesting as it comes out. But mm. uh, you, there's no way it's compete from my perspective to with the, the, the you know the super highway of, of, of the fiber optic uh, <laughs> yeah. capability and so it's going to be both and you know those leo the leo deployment is going to be very interesting for a lot of you know application specific things particularly around mobility and uh, you know which is pretty cool um and so yeah i think this the both come together can be uh, you know pretty interesting repairing a subsea cable sounds challenging but probably not as challenging as getting up to space to fix a satellite <laughs> 
Well, put it this way: we've got we've got more experience on the subsea and managing that capacity demand. Um, mm. Obviously, satellite, new technology. This will take time to embed, but I think the conclusion here is, you know, we definitely see um, that there's there's a potential synergy, and they could serve different niches on it. But in our view. Um, you still need a medium like the submarine network just for the volume of content that's moved around the world. And that's only increasing year on year. That's not going to go backwards, right? Um, you know, as more and more of the world gets access to the internet and Wi-Fi and these technologies, you, you're going to have that demand continue just the way the connected world is evolving, right? Um, you know, the speed it's re- evolving and that demand to be able to move data. Uh, will, in my view, need the submarine network plus the satellites um, plus maybe even another medium if we can figure out how to get one. <laughs> so that in mind, what is Telstra's roadmap for your subsea cable network? You've mentioned already that you're global. You are updating the technology that's on either end of the cable for more throughput across the existing cables. Is there more cable going to be laid? Is it a larger global reach? What's the plan? Telstra's focus is that intra-Asia uh, sort of Australia and supporting those markets both coming into Asia and out. So, so definitely um, Telstra is continuing to look at investments in those new subsea cables. Um, we've made some specifically Asia to the US as well as Australia um, as Australia out. Um, so we'll definitely consider to look at that investment in the in the subsea and continue to invest in that that Indo-Asia part out. That's definitely um, you know the, the key focus of the roadmap. Um, the other area we're looking at doing obviously is we partner a lot with a lot of other providers around the globe, right? Both in terms of expanding our footprint, but it also gives you that resilience, right? On supporting when we need support on moving traffic around, you know, if there's an environmental and other issues. So, you know, for us, it's definitely strengthening um, that intra-Asia position we have. We have a really strong position, as Andy mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of our own infrastructure there. So it's investing and upgrading that infrastructure to support the customers. So Jeff, I got another uh, future looking question for you. And, and this gets into the topic of capacity planning. You know, you, you mentioned the roadmap, you mentioned where you're going to be growing, adding circuits and stuff. Okay. How do you figure out like, okay, between here and here, we need to add more. How, how do you know? Is it just like human instinct or do you have... I don't know, a big spreadsheet, how do you do it? Thanks, so yeah, I mean, capacity planning is absolutely critical for us in this space. Um, you know, we, we look at multiple scenarios. We, we look at obviously trends, uh, experience, uh, what investments we wanna make future down the track. We look at the resilience of our network. And obviously we have all certain metrics where we're tracking alerts on capacity thresholds, um, when alerts are running, but probably the most critical piece we have is looking at how we can take advantage of technology, um, specifically around running simulations and trying to predict market dynamics that are happening. And this is where we really are spending a lot of energy and looking at, you know, how can we bring machine learning disciplines 
um, to be a helpful advancement in this capacity planning, you know, specifically around running those scenarios and simulations or the statistical probabilities of what impact that would have across our network so we can predict our future cap capacity needs. You know, the network's getting complicated. I mentioned we had 28,000 plus different routing combinations. Mm -hmm. So, you really need that automated capability. And I would say to give you that in a visual sense for our human capacity to get around it. So what happens if we had you know, this route or that route done? How would we automatically route that traffic? Would we have the capacity in? How long is the capacity upgrade to get that in place? So you can then look at when those triggers or alerts should come out your system. So that's that's the exciting part I see that this machine learning will certainly help me in my space to have less sleepless nights so I can have the support and the critical pieces, that visualization to be able to proactively do this. I mean, we did some of this. Um, I don't want to get too much, but in you know the traffic growth that surged when COVID and others first happened, we, we had a lot of um, proactive and predictive analysis we're doing, and we saw it really start to help us there. You know, through the traffic surges we see, and it's sort of plateaued back to normal levels, we didn't drop a single packet in that process because mm. we really had those predictive alerts in place. The, the you know that's on a smaller scale. The real uh, exciting part of this, and it's on our roadmap, is how do we do this globally across all of those multiple routes, and then even extend it across our partner networks if possible. That that would really be my, um, I guess. Uh, then I can retire once that's achieved. <laughs> well, you mentioned machine learning along the way, and then applying all of the data to the to those algorithms to try to figure out where you need to add capacity. And to me, that that is where ML makes some sense. I used to do capacity planning for any number of WANs, but nothing on a global scale with you know 28,000 routes like you've been talking about, way beyond a human's ability to sort through what all the permutations are and come up with a cost-effective and intelligent plan to do capacity planning. For us, it was more like, can I get more? I'd like more here, please. <laughs> and then you just kind of do it if you can find budget. No, this needs a, a real complex uh, solution to the problem. So it's, it's very interesting that you've got an ML use case here for capacity planning. And man, we could spend another hour talking about that because digging into that would be really fascinating, but we don't have time. So Jeff, Andy, thank you very much for coming on Packet Pushers Heavy Networking today. And uh, Andy, starting with you, would you tell folks how they can follow you on the internet if you're on Twitter, if you have a blog, or maybe you wrote a book, I don't know, anything like that you'd like to share? Um, I haven't wrote a book yet, but uh, yeah, look, you can find me on, on LinkedIn, uh, Andy Lumsden, um, uh, pretty easy to find there. Uh, Telstra's got a bunch of um, uh, blogs and we've done other content and a couple of videos, I think, out there that you can find on our internet site um, and media guys have got this on, on every other platform as mm -hmm. well. So it's all findable. And Jeff, same question to you. How can people follow you? Look exactly the same. I, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think you'll have the blogs on Telstra. But otherwise, um, you know, we, we had a lot of forums and other discussions. I would say it's it's pretty open if you're interested in this industry or getting involved or even want to um, compare notes on how we can uh, better predict the future, then I would say please reach out. I'm more than happy to spend time on this. Um, Great stuff, uh, both of you. Thank you very much for the time you spent with us on the podcast today, sharing your knowledge. 
I learned a ton and I just want to keep asking you questions, but, uh, but we can't today. If you are listening to this and you want to dig into more about undersea cables or learn more about Telstra, they are on Twitter at Telstra ENT. You can find them on LinkedIn. Look for linkedin.com slash showcase slash Telstra dash enterprise, and then Telstra.com slash global for landing pages and more data, more information on all of this cool stuff that we talked about today. If you like these kind of shows, well, you can find many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. And that is all at packetpushers.net. And we are on Twitter too, at packetpushers and of course on LinkedIn. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.